This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the wine world. Cool. You mean that little knife they give you on the cork puller? Yes, that's exactly what we do. No, <laughs> not really. What happened is I tracked down some of the latest reports and surveys in the wine world. You know, oh, I, love, you know I love my reports and my oh, surveys. Boy. Yeah, I know you don't. But I do, and uh, I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to bring you some info on what's going on in the wine world. We have a couple of studies from real scientists, genuine scientists on wine and health. We have questions from listeners, including why the pictures of uh, wine pros always make them look like tools. And as usual, (laughs) we will make fun of wine snob. Studies show people hate wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to start with a bit of info from the world of wine, or from the world of people who study things about wine. You know, I bet some of those people who study wine make a lot more money than the guys who actually make it. I told you, Paul, we should be doing studies. Yeah, we should be doing studies. We we could just study what's in the glass. That's fun, (laughs) but I don't think you get paid to do that. Well, yeah, we should try, though. Uh, well, here's the first one, and it's actually uh, it's sort of interesting. This one could be useful. <laughs> Most see how I say it? this one could be useful as opposed to the other ones. And but... yet, I keep bringing you studies. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's this is group called Watt Wine. They're British, which doesn't is not a not an insult. And actually, what it is, it's a bunch of wine pros and some techno folks, and they they sort of have a focus on supermarket wines. And, right. And what they did was they uh, examined, they tasted, examined. They used the word examined. They tasted. Uh, 6,000 bottles over two years. And what they did was they, you know, they'd go taste them early, taste them late. They went back and they, they concluded that 35% of the bottles the light, in lighter colored glass were light damaged. Yep. That they had lost a little bit of something, a little snap, a little bit yep. of pizzazz. Yep. Um, there is a reason that bottles come, that wine comes in dark bottles in a lot of cases. Because yeah. actually, and it, inter- interesting, it's it's UV light. It's fluorescent lighting. Right, right. You know, um, incandescent lighting doesn't do it. But UV lighting, which is what you see in most stores, will actually damage the wine. And I actually, I talked to a friend of mine who's a... Uh, sparkling wine winemaker who says he figures that it's a much bigger problem than bad corks or anything else is just people get these bottles they stick them in the store they leave them there for six months and then they sell them and as he says you know when I make it, I know what it tastes like, and I get it out of that store, and it doesn't taste the same. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, you hear this a lot, and we talk a lot about how you know you taste wine at the winery, and it's right. not the same when you get it home. Yep. And one huge reason is because you're at the winery, and there's little vineyards, and That's you know, right. and, and lots of people you're on being vacation. nice. Yes, yeah, you have a lovely time. But another reason is because they store their wine well. Right. And and right. whether we are just taking the bottle and driving it home, or buying it at stores, unless it's really sort of these very fine wine shops. Although I've seen some very fine wine shops, the wine is just sitting out there. Yeah, one rule is never buy the wine that's in the window. Yeah. How much is that bottle in yes, the window? Yes, never buy the wine in the window. it should be free. Well, and here's – so here is your bit of advice. And we're talking about light-colored bottles. So this would be things like you know, Sauvignon Blanc in particular is one that we see a lot of, or Pinot Grigio. It's a lot of Chardonnays. Right. For, for people who rosés. don't know what light-colored bottles is, it's clear glass. Yes, yes. Well, clear glass. But there's also some very lightly lightly yeah. tinted. So, But basically clear or light. Right. Um, and so it's mostly white. And it's right. mostly lighter whites. 
Um, and But also don't buy the bottle like in those big displays at the end of the aisle. Uh-huh. Go to the go to the, the actual wine aisle on the shelf and reach in and take one that's not the first or bottle. Or pull one out of the box. Well, or if there's one in the box, sure. So talking about light struck yeah, wine. Yeah, what you should do is actually was is you take the big box off the top and you just pull it and then reach in. <laughs> and and pull out a bottle. And then don't get kicked out of the store. So <laughs> we've talked about uh, Cristal before, the famous yeah. champagne, which yeah, yeah. comes in a clear bottle because the czar was afraid that somebody's going to hide a bomb in his champagne and kill him. <laughs> but that bottle comes wrapped in a dark cellophane, sort of a dark yellow cellophane wrapper. And the only purpose of that cellophane wrapper is to protect the wine against light because the clear glass that the Tsar demanded wouldn't do it. And bombs is to protect it also against bombs. Well, the bombs is the clear bottle. The yellow cellophane is to protect it from the light. You seal the cellophane and you can – well, all right. Yes. That makes sense to me. All right, so no bombs, no light and glass, uh, or at least be careful about it. Well, just buy buy wines that have been in the dark. Yes, like us. Like us. <laughs> we knew I where set that was that going. up a that little was, too easily. <laughs> that was obvious. All right, here's something. A Unified Wine and Grape Symposium, which is the largest wine trade show. It's really for pros. It was in Sacramento uh, just this week. What were you doing there? Um, said, uh, you said wander- it was for pros? Yes, I was wandering lost is what I was doing. <laughs> you were looking for the restroom and <laughs> found the more conference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, and they have the state of the industry and lots of reports. And a lot of right. them were lots of details, which I'm not going to weigh you down with. But, Thank you. Uh, but one thing that, that I thought was, was rather interesting was that, you know, by, by and large, it said 2014 had yep. been a good year. 15 is going to be a little uh, – there's some skepticism about where it goes in part in California because of the drought. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. one of the things – that was rather obvious in almost everybody's reports was that the bottom end of the price list, yep. which is like seven dollars, eight dollars uh, a bottle, below. and below, right, and below, all the way down, is not a huge growth category. No, in fact, it's actually shrinking. Yeah, and what people are, people are buying the same amount of wine overall. The wine market grew less than a uh, less than one percent last year right. in the U.S. But uh, but the un- prices are under up. five dollars. It shrank. And over about ten or twelve dollars, it grew. So people, it, it's not fair to say they're drinking less, but they are drinking better. Yeah. I think it's because of our show, frankly. Well, I think so too. I think the fact that they, uh, they feel more educated, they feel more comfortable going up. Well, um, they may feel comfortable. They sure don't feel educated. But, not, uh, not thanks to us. Which may also explain why uh, spirits was way up. <laughs> right. <laughs> the hard, the hard us. stuff is <laughs> people are going for the hard stuff. But that was actually what it was: is the lower end. Uh, wines were losing market share to right. higher end wines, yep. to spirits, to uh, to the other malt out drinks. You know the weird yep. uh, the Mike's Hard Lemonades, and and of course to craft beer. Not yep. not to Bud and Miller; those guys are down, but yep. to, to some craft beers as well. Yep. Uh, sort of interesting one. Yep. Um, uh, here's one of my favorites. Uh, okay. This is the annual uh, wine consumption per person. Oh, I love this one. Who drinks the most wine per capita? Okay, right? Uh, yes. Which which country? Which which? Uh, and, and number one has been number one for generations, and is always number one by fifty percent more than any other place. As it is, again, it's nearly double everybody yep. else. It the is the only um, different. And let's give our readers a little clue. Listeners, here. listeners, we're listeners, radio, sorry. It's a radio, that big microphone. Thing oh, is that's a radio. what this is. I know. Stop so, typing on it. <laughs> so the clue here is: Can you guess where this is? Because they don't drink so much Chianti Classico, and they drink a little more Malbec now. Uh, yeah, that's going to confuse them, actually. You think? Yes. And I will say here is your first clue is that um, there's like 900 people there. Yes. Maybe 1,000. And, and none of them are married. 
and none of them are married. That's exactly right. Well, no, that's not true. There's employees that could be married. Uh, all right. So your answer is Vatican City. <laughs> the Vatican City. And they're maybe drinking a little less Italian wine because yes. Pope Francis likes his bottle right. of Malbec from yes. time to time. Yeah, it was a good one, but it's a little confusing. But yes, nonetheless. So they are they – are, uh, they, these come in liters, but it bounced to about 100 bottles per person per year. Right. Um, and frankly, I think that's probably <laughs> – I might be low. Number two, <laughs> number two is Little Andorra at 46.4 liters as opposed right. to 73.8 liters. So that's that you know that that is near but not quite it's about 40% more right and of course remember that andorra is a little skewed because andorra is a little bit like las vegas in that it's a right. huge tourist destination and not everybody in andorra right. is drinking that much right. is my guess number 3 is france of that's course. sort of no surprise of course and number 4 and though i understand this and, and paul i should make you uh, pronounce this um, cuz i had, don't really know how to pronounce it is saint pierre et miquelon which is a french connected a uh, set of islands. Right, off uh, the northwest, in, off the northeast, off yeah. of the coast of Maine. And yeah, in fact, they were really important during Prohibition because it was legal to get liquor there and people would stock up right. boats and sail home from them. Yeah, and you figure where they are. So think about this is this is deep, high northern Atlantic Ocean they need to drink. They got nothing else to do. Yeah, and then it sort of rolls into things you might expect. U.S., is number 56. Yeah, but the, I want to have a little asterisk next to the U.S. Because the U.S. I, that, drinks, I think that takes a, an act of Congress. No, no, no. And, and, and it's not because we've been, we've been using steroids. But um, you are right that in the, in the Vatican City, they drink, let's say, 100 bottles, and we drink about 14 or 15. 13. Key, key factor here is that in the U.S., 20% of the people in America drink wine. True. No, so the other 80% well, don't drink exactly, wine. Right, right. So you got to figure you take those the 20% that drink wine, they're drinking enough for everybody else too. You got to multiply the average consumption, 13 bottles, times five times to, wine drinkers. Well, then, of course, you, know you need to do that for everywhere else, too. Yeah, but though. you know what? In the Vatican, everybody drinks. In the U.S., 80% they, of the people do, right? don't drink yeah. wine. So the people who do drink wine in the U.S., the what we call the core wine drinker, they drink 65 bottles of wine a year. Well, I That's think more that... than one a week. That's respectable. 65 a year? That's right. You're that's, way ahead of that, aren't you? That's, that's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just um, – all right. I still want to say, Americans, step it up, my friends. Step well, it up. All right. you know what you got to do is you got to invite a couple of friends that don't enjoy wine over to your house and get them excited about something and turn them, in, turn them on to what, what fun wine no, can we, be. We try. I just make them bring wine. <laughs> yeah, well, no, 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 no. All right. I have one more study, and then we're moving on. Oh, will it never end? Uh, well, this is, this is another report, and, and this is sort of an interesting one. This is really just who produces wine or wine production, and it's, it goes back and forth. You know, uh, it's from the Organization of uh, Vine and Wine. I'm not, don't, it's the OIV, which is the French group that for, keeps an eye on these things. French for the Organisation Internationale de Vin. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. what I would have said if yeah. I spoke French um, or had an accent. Uh, in any case— um, Oh, you do have an accent. Yes. Uh. <laughs> it's a different kind of problem. Um, so France is back on top. Um, it, uh, Italy, two years ago, um, was on top. But, yeah, they go back and forth. Yeah, and part of it has to do with weather. In fact, that was the case this right. year was that uh, right. Italy fell. So France is number one, Italy is number two, Spain's number three, and that's been number one, two, three, back and forth. Spain, yep. for a very long time, was number one, and the reason was this grape that uh, 
undoubtedly you've never heard of called Airen. 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 See, there's once again my accent. And it is, uh, it's this grape that's used to make this really crappy white wine. And also, um, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I think I may not be able to say that, but it's really bad white wine. And uh, also spirits. It was, uh, yeah, it made a, a, a But you know, Spain dessert. actually has more vineyards than France or Italy. More, but the, more land, yes. But the production is as high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and who's number four? U.S. Yes, it is. That's right. And we are, we are. So, and actually, it's one of the things that the that is good news for American wine drinkers, despite the fact that we may not be at the top of the list per consumption. As a market, we are number one. We are the in fact, biggest we're market. The, we're the only country that is in the top four in in. Overall consumption, overall production, overall import, overall export. Right. And so what that right. does is it makes American wine and American wine palates a huge force in the world's wine. Mm-hmm. And some people complain about that. And it might be a legitimate complaint, which is that the, the sort of this you know averaging out of, of this world palate. Um, I, I don't know how yeah. true that is. But, but it is true. We are, the, we are the largest wine producer that actually imports a lot of wine. Right, right, right France right. and Italy, they make a ton of wine. But, but they don't trust import me, that nobody much. in France is saying, own. where could I get a good Spanish red wine? Whereas here, we look for wines from all over the world, and we love them. Right, right. Uh, are we, you done with the studies? Cause we, this, no, well, I have more studies, but they're on health. So these may be useful okay. to people. Okay. And um, one of them is uh, maybe not listening to us, but uh, <laughs> but that's later in the show. When we, <laughs> okay. when we come back, we're going to take some questions. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to open our mailbag. We are taking questions from listeners, and if you'd like to be one of those folks who asks us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. That's all one word, Rick and Paul Wine, and look for us on iTunes as well. You can subscribe for free with just a click. If you're new to us, by the way, uh, and if you've heard some of this show, you are probably wondering what on earth are we doing trying to help people off, out by answering questions, because what qualifies us? Well, we listen to all those studies that you look uh, at. I, and I read the studies You read constantly. the studies. So, yeah, you um, read the studies I, so nobody else has to. I Thank am, you, Rick. I'm a little study guy. Uh, but we actually have a little bit of expertise, at least uh, some. Um, my friend Paul here is a respected industry pro. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches all over the place, including Napa Valley College and around the world. Uh, and he's uh, judged many places, many times. It's true, and sometimes wine. Yeah. Other times, I just judge people. Yes, I've seen that. It's really kind of an ugly thing, Paul. <laughs> I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Well, it's okay. <laughs> when so before when we dive into the question, the I should defend your honor a little bit oh, by saying good, that you do. Good luck. Um, good luck. Longtime journalist, best-selling author about wine, New York Times best-selling author, uh, and you do uh, uh, some wine commentary on Capital Public Radio as well. So Bless you must them. know something. Bless them for letting us use your studios. I think it's because uh, at least. Capital Public Radio, our charitable organization, they let us. <laughs> All right. Our first question comes from Suzanne Garcia in San Francisco. And I'm telling you, reading this question, I think I like Suzanne. This cool. is her question. It's a bit of a uh, stay with us here. She writes, why is it that in every picture I see of wine professionals, and particularly sommeliers, and they're young sommeliers, sommeliers, she says, they're dressed like stiff hedge fund wannabes, especially Ooh. the guys. They have, they have tight, overdone suits and ties. They're always holding a glass of wine and looking at it like it's the Rosetta Stone. I don't want advice from those guys. 
I don't want to talk to those guys. Ouch. <laughs> All right, Suzanne, first thing I need to tell you is if you've ever seen our pictures, you will doubt whether we even own a suit. <laughs> yeah, so so we are we are qualified to start answering that question. And you know, one of the one of the sad reasons, and this isn't something and frankly, Paul, who also runs a marketing company, is always trying to teach, which is that they do it because everybody else does it. Well, they partly do it because everybody else does it. I mean, if you go back a generation, the classic sommelier would be in the full dress uniform with the little silver test van hanging around his neck, and he would be all dolled up and be very formal. Now, of course, we don't expect our waiters to even to dress up. In fact, I stayed at a hotel the other t- uh, a few days ago in New York where I actually couldn't tell who worked there because none of them were dressed that's as the, if they're that's staff. That's the thing, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you look around and you need somebody to help, and if you're you know you're afraid you're going to ask one of the other guests if they can help. That's to carry why people your bag. at the next table keep beating me up. You know, <laughs> right. I, I ask them for water. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. But then I think the other thing that Suzanne's talking about a little bit here is the kind of hipster costume. Yeah, and it's the cool certainly young, right? sommelier. That a sommelier is one of the kind of hist- hipster professions that the young generation think is really cool, and you got to wear the right clothes. And I wonder if she would look at, for example, some of the people um, launching startups in Silicon Valley and say the same thing about them, because it's the same generation. Part of it's just generational. That's what's cool to wear. But the other thing is, anybody who's working in a restaurant, and Rick, you know this because you train restaurant staff. When the doors open, it's showtime. And in one way or another, you've got to bring your A game. I think you do have to dress up a little bit. And the real question is, A, why do these guys wear that stuff if they're trying to be approachable? And and, right. and then B, right, the, right, right. the second question she has is, why do they always take a photograph with their nose in the glass? Yeah. And, of course, that one's just laughable because, you know, that's that's the most boring photograph uh. In the history of wine, every winemaker, every sommelier has a photo of somebody sitting there with their nose buried in a glass. And, Rick, I am happy to say that if you go to our website, you will not see either one of us sticking our nose in a glass of wine. There is that one of me chugging the bottle, but that's, that's, not, a, different. that's not a good and, picture. And, yeah. well, yeah. and it was you know, candid. The good news is we had to wrap the bottle in a brown paper bag, yes. so we didn't do any product placement. So it really fits <laughs> in with your personality. You know, there. actually, we got when we got this question, I, w- I went and I sort of just scrolled through some restaurant wine sites, and and you know, yep. and she's so right. There's yep. so many, and the other the other pose that they don't have the nose in the wine glass, which is like fifty percent of the pictures, um, is with their arms crossed. Very, you know, very very important. Very or, outgoing. Or, yes, right, right. <laughs> and it is, and she is absolutely right. And this is an issue, frankly. It is one of the things that I deal with when I do restaurant trainings, which is uh, in, in in one case, in some of the restaurants, the, the a lot of the servers are afraid of wine, and so they're afraid to talk about it. Right. And, you know, and I'm thinking in some ways they are at least the best aid of – because if they do some tasting, they're going to be very much like the people they're serving. They're customers, right. And then the other end of it is is the is the the sort of pushy psalms and, well, you know, and, and not necessarily certified psalms, but people who feel that whatever it is – they like is what everybody else should be well, drinking. Well, in, in fact, what they do is they feel that they are in a position of, and here's a word that really rubs people the long, wrong way when you're talking about the service industry, a position of authority. Yeah. So they're standing there with their arms crossed because they know. Right. And you know what? They don't know. They don't know what you like. 
and their job is to figure that one out. So, yeah, it, it is a little bit of a pose that I think works against the basic definition of, of the position, which is their job is not to be an authority. Their job is to help you have a good time. Right. And, and they need to remember, and this is true about everything. It's really true about anything anywhere in the service industry. It's actually true in media and in the entertainment industry, too, which is that it's not your colleagues. I've already mangled my sentence. You are not dressing for your colleagues. You're not posing for your colleagues. Right. You're posing for your listeners, your readers, your customers, the yes. people that you work we, with. Serve. We dress up carefully for our exactly. listeners. Exactly. We, we know we dress up. We dress so that our engineer, Matt Bassini, won't laugh at us. Because, <laughs> and you know what? It doesn't work. Because if we came in with no pants, Paul, uh, he would probably not even – he would he would run screaming from the engineering. <laughs> Wait, there he goes now. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Suzanne, that's a very good question. Thanks for sending it. All right. This one – is from Josh Panay in Sacramento. I have to say this was a question that was asked to me. Uh, he he uh-huh, came to one good. of my um, one of my tastings, but he has listened to the podcast. He promises, and it's a good question. He says, uh, "Why is there Bordeaux and white Bordeaux? Why is it not red oh. Bordeaux and white Bordeaux?" And yeah. then his next question. And while we're at it. What kind of grape is white Bordeaux? You know, it's a really funny question because, of course, on the one hand, that is true of Burgundy. Right, you know, Burgundy. You do say you have in red Burgundy, Burgundy they say red Burgundy, right? And white Burgundy, and and we need let's we're going to dis- describe Burgundy very quickly, just in case people don't know. Red Burgundy is Pinot Noir, white Burgundy is Chardonnay. Right, and Burgundy is a place in France where that's where all the grape, that's all the red all grapes, pretty much are Pinot yeah. Noir, and pretty much all the white grapes right. are Chardonnay. In Bordeaux, it's a little more complicated. First right. of all, most of the wine they make in Bordeaux is red wine. So when people say Bordeaux, they generally mean, okay, yeah, red wine. Now, there is a lot of white wine, but it's not as famous as the red wine. For example, if you talk about the classified gross of Bordeaux, the great chateaus of Bordeaux, I think there are 150 of them, roughly. And of those, uh, only about 25, maybe 30 produce white wine. The rest are all red wine wineries. So when you say Bordeaux, you want to say basically you're talking about that red wine region. Now, having having said that, I guess we'll get around later to what grapes are in red Bordeaux. But that leaves the other side, which is, is white. white Bordeaux, right. And there are two kinds of white Bordeaux. There's dry white wines from Pesach Leonian Graves, which is primarily Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, Little Muscadel. Um, yeah, mostly, though, the way to think of it is mostly, right, it's Sauvignon Blanc with Semillon, so, and, right. and Semillon rounds out the Sauvignon Blanc, so it's a little different than what we what we used to hear. Pretty different and pretty delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas the red wines are the classic, what are, it's called the classic Bordeaux blend, which is Cabernet, Sauvignon, Cabernet, Franc, Merlot, and then a little bit of some odd grapes that you may have never heard of, Petit Verdot, and then, of course, Malbec, which isn't famous in Bordeaux but got really yeah. famous in Argentina. Yeah, that's we, we need to do a, a show really sort of talking the entire Malbec story because it's a really a fun story. It is a fun but, story. Uh, and, and the Pope would like us as well. <laughs> anything, any, boy, anything we can do to help, that yes. would be good. Yes, yeah. uh, but uh, Josh, so in, to answer your question, it is, I mean, I, and really narrowed down, as Paul said, you know, that, that is the difference that so much of what they do in Bordeaux is just red, so that's the assumption. There is also this thing, and we talk about this all the time on the show, uh, which is that in places like Bordeaux, Bordeaux is actually in essence a brand name of sorts, which is it that is. if you know what Bordeaux is, you know it's the some version of those grapes, it's those red wines, and, and so it's kind of like if you said Cheerios, you know, we kind of know it's these, these these round little O's, or they have some oats in them, they're not particularly <laughs> sweet, you know. Um, if Are we it, getting money from General Mills? We should. <laughs> I was gonna. I was. I was gonna say this Cheerios is, and Bordeaux. Send the, them a copy the of the show. See the if kings, they'll send us um, some money. 
Yes. Uh, in any case. Um, so that is that's that's sort of the issue. Uh, yep. But and, and you see that term here in America because yeah. you see wine ma- wineries that say that what they are making is what they call a Bordeaux blend, which means it'll be one of the two or three or four of those five grape varieties all blended together, and they call it a Bordeaux blend. Right. And in in fact, there's sort of a, a term that also now meritage or meritage, depending right. on who you're talking to, right. um, is a, is a copyright gr- term that but it also means the same thing. Some yep. some combination of those uh, those yep. wines. Um, and, so, and if you ask the organization, it's Meritage. And Meritage, right. The, meritage. the organization is Meritage, but most people call it Meritage because it's French. Because it sounds so it much does. better when you say yes. Meritage. Uh, m- m- I call it Meritage. <laughs> um, but that, that would just be me. All right, that is it for questions right for now. We will have many more in the second half of the show. We've got lots more coming up, including some horrible wine writing and oh, a boy. few other things. Oh, I've got a good one for you today. Okay. If you'd like to ask us a question we can answer on the show, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. We will be right back. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I love that music, and that means it is time for our regular attempt to remind you that some people are earning a living, and we don't know why. No, that's... (laughs) That's a little mean, but it is time for really horrible wine writing. And as usual, Paul is uh, the more specific, and I come in with my general. What is your specific for us today? Well, it's really interesting. I was reading a uh, an online post a while back by a woman who actually compiled a list of wine terms that she said were confusing to people, and she wrote a dictionary of them. What was fascinating to me was that in the commentary after she did her post, many, many people wrote in to say that she had, in fact, misdefined the very term she was hoping to clarify. And some people admitted that there was no definition whatsoever. So I'm thinking, OK, you pick a word and people don't even know what it means. And the experts disagree on what it means. And then that's the word you're going to use to describe the wine. And boy, I just thought this is a bad way to to compose an essay on wine. So the word flamboyant. And she says... A you know, fl- I've been described that way. No, you have not. That's true. No, you have not. No, I have not. A flamboyant <laughs> wine is trying to get your attention with an abundance of fruit. The writer picks up on this and calls it out. Now, I actually don't think that that's necessarily what flamboyant means in wine, but I would never use flamboyant because I think it means too many different things exactly. to too many different people. You're not helping anybody here. Exactly. And and uh, uh, let me just go back to me for one second. Yes. I, I am tr- always trying to get attention. It so is, that it is all about you, yes. <laughs> But you are, abs- <laughs> you are absolutely right, which is that it is. this is one of the major, major complaints about wine writing because, you know, it's okay— it's if somebody was talking about a movie, you know, we, we feel so comfortable talking about movies. Many, many people feel like they have their own sort of set of standards, and so right. they're, they're able to judge. And if they don't understand a word, they're fine with it. But in wine, which is managed to cloak itself in mystery and disguise, I'm just wondering. You shouldn't if do the, that. I'm just wondering if the flamboyant wine isn't wearing a very wide lapel, double-breasted suit with wingtip shoes, pink pants. Pink pants. Yeah. Is that what the wine is doing? I think so. Well, I I'd like so. to see it. Or it could be this reviewer. Okay. Um, I'm 
I'm, I'm just because we're still we're still pretending to be nice people. I'm not gonna uh, name this review, but this person writes for a fairly fairly major newspaper on the West Coast, um, though not right on the West Coast. Um, <laughs> and he's talking about a wine, and it goes on and on. And one of the things he does is is the and you've heard me complain about this so often with critics before is he takes the sommelier test thing which he, he describes the wine the aroma right. the flavor right. draws conclusions right. as opposed which, to just making which, you well which is fair i mean if you're smelling if you're looking at a wine you want to talk about color you want to talk about what it smells like what it tastes like fair enough in in a way that's useful in a way that's useful yes so, but this is this is ahead, just Rick. this is just something we try to pass the it. test so let me just uh, take a few things out of it um on the nose there are fresh notes of crushed white fruit from pomelo White cranberries, stone rose, white flowers, Asian pear, and subtle hints of white rose petals and white corn, as well as soft minerality. Okay. Now, first of all, can I ask, is this a white wine? Because <laughs> you got white fruit, white cranberries, white flowers, white rose, and white corn. It is. It is. That is, by the way, so it's eight, it's eight aromas, actually, if you consider soft minerality. Wow. He's got white corn. There is, uh, for the record, because I, I looked around, uh, there is nothing, there's no such thing as stone rose. Look, uh-huh. uh, Purdue University Cooperative Extension Services lists every known variety of rose, and it's not on there. I wonder if it's a stoned rose. It could be. Or it, Dude. maybe it's a rose that's yeah you man <laughs> all right and then but the, so then he goes to the palate okay. and has the wine is ultra suave ah, so that's uh, that's the that's opposite, the opposite of, flam- of flamboyant exactly right absolutely so this is a cool low key this is a Frank Sinatra wine with a Swedish pear and white currant entry followed by citrus rind dried apricots buttery anise I don't know how that is possible wow. and a zesty key lime kick. And notice how none of the on the palates are have anything to do with the on the nose. You know, I thought he was close when, but the white cranberries in the nose turned into white currants in the yes. mouth. And none of the things that he smelled actually end up on the palate. And here's the interesting thing, Rick, you know and I know. Th- there are no such thing as white stuff. currants? Well, no. Because <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> okay, good. Because what I was going to say is you know and I know that flavor we only taste five things. Right. What's in the mouth is, is basically what, what you smell. So if it, you're tasting things yeah. that are completely different from what you're smelling, right. there's a disconnect there. Yes. And it was, it's it complete. This is just somebody who's just reaching, reaching, reaching. And I, what I thought was funny was, oh, say, so here is, this is why wine, especially wine critics like this, are, is somebody who's just trying too hard and ends up being completely unuseful. Is now right. there's like, there is what, eight and six, is 14 different flavors. Right. We still really know what the wine is like. So the difference between him and us he's trying really hard and doing nothing useful yes and we're, we're not we're not trying we're not trying at all we're just still being not useful <laughs> um, and but and for the record I, I looked up the winemakers notes on this wine yes and and of course this part's funny too had lifted aromas whatever that is <laughs> of honeysuckle lemon zest nutmeg whetstone developing into rich aromas of lychee beeswax and melon and so you know what here's the thing None of the, what, 37 flavors that the critic listed was any of the flavors that, that the, the winemaker well, except there's some you know some citrus connection but in, which is just another wow. thing that goes to tell you that when you're describing yeah. wines maybe the better thing to do is sort of you know give us a sense of the body the feel the texture you know the, it, it, you, you know it is true that's something i actually like talking about in terms of wine and a lot of people who write about wine rarely mention the texture and i think that's important but yes there's a really good example of gosh there was a whole lot of words and are we smarter now that we finished all of that and the answer is 
And it takes more than that to make us smarter. Well, that, that part is absolutely <laughs> true. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And uh, a reminder, uh, if you don't want us to be smart, you can still find us on iTunes and subscribe <laughs> for free. Um, we, uh, we are moving straight to our uh, wine word of the week. Good. And here's our word. Handcrafted. Ah. Uh, I know how much you like that word, Paul. Yes, I love that word because, you know, it makes me think of all of those people out there who are handcrafting wines as opposed to those other people who are— The machine, robotic wines? The robotic <laughs> wines. I'd not get, yeah, everybody's wine is—you know, this is—of course, the people who stole this are craft beers, right? Oh, yeah. Because all of those craft beers are handcrafted. There is what people want to buy when they buy a bottle of wine is the sense that somebody on the other side of that bottle actually worked really hard and was personal, put some energy and effort into it. So people call the wines handcrafted. There's no such thing as a handcrafted wine any more than there's a machine-made wine. Wines are fermented in tanks. Yeah, there's nobody no, in there, by the way, in that tank squishing the grapes around. No, and nobody's holding the juice in their hand. Uh, uh. Um, and, and frankly, you, you know, when you talk about moving the wine and stuff, the old hand pumps are actually less effective than many modern ways of moving the wine. So, and barrels, again, it's, this is, it's all basically the same kind of stuff. You can do it on a larger scale. You can do it on a smaller scale, but every wine in the world is made by some guy who cares and he's probably wearing lederhosen and he probably smokes a pipe <laughs> and he's got a cute little mustache and just keep that image in your mind and don't yeah. worry about whether the wine is handcrafted, footcrafted, um, or whether it's machine made its wine. And, you know, it, it, because you run a marketing company and I consult with a lot of wineries and, and we have both had these conversations with these folks about and they just feel compelled to, to slap it on Everything. their website, their advertising, and it's handcrafted. And if you yep. look, you know, especially go through for somebody who wants to do this, go through a uh, some wine region that's not, say, Napa or Sonoma, where they have these really major league, you know, marketing companies running every winery. Go to some smaller wine region, the foothills, down the coast, anywhere, and, and just look at, you know, you go to the website of the, the wine region, you look at all the wines, and you just sort of click on the each individual description, and I guarantee you that every single one of them, well, maybe not every single one, but 88 to 96% will have handcrafted, handcrafted. in the first couple of sentences. Yep. Yes. Well, yep. Uh, this is uh, Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are definitely handcrafted, uh, <laughs> and we are we're moving uh, we're moving to a couple of handcrafted studies from some genuine scientists and medical professionals. Cool. The uh, the first of them, and this is these are sort of useful bits of information, by the way, unlike most of what you've been getting from us today. <laughs> the first is from the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla. Uh huh. It's on the age-defying effects of red wine. You know what? If I had a research institute— It'd be in La Jolla, it'd, wouldn't it? It'd be I, in La Jolla. I'm so jealous of these yeah. guys. Yeah, they're yeah. doing research on wine and they're in La Jolla. <laughs> I totally. That's exactly what I thought, too. Yep. All right. So and this is that it, there is actually some age-defying impact of red wine. It's from something called Reserveratrol, and it's something that has that we've talked about in the past, or the wine the wine world has talked about in the past. Scientists have, right? But what's unique about theirs is not only do they break down some new pieces of it, they also say that it can actually work within as little as two glasses of wine. So you don't an have hour. To, Yes. Well, it is. You know, a lot of those studies, in fact, they said one of the reasons why some of the studies had been sort of mucked up and, and yep. research has been unclear because they had such large amounts of reservatrol that they were giving the rats. These rats were having a lovely time, but, right. you know, eventually now, they died it, of liver disease. A couple uh, of things I need to clarify here. 
one of them, Rick, is it's resveratrol. Res- resveratrol. You're resveratrol. right. Resveratrol. Although it looks like resveratrol I, because yeah. it does preserve us, but it's actually resveratrol. Resveratrol. I, I always and, throw the R in because I think R is a good letter. <laughs> I just love R's. That's good thinking. Yes. Um, and then the other part of this is it should be pointed out that you can get resveratrol in other things. You grapes, can get it in example. grape juice. Yep. You can get it in cranberries, very high in resveratrol. Well, the, so the, actually, Thanksgiving the highest, dinner. There's some other things that are points. Yes, yes, yes. Thanksgiving dinner, you're drinking red wine, you're eating cranberries. You know, I mean, you'll live forever if you just eat Thanksgiving dinner every day. Yes, especially the pie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the point being, and there's a handful of things that it does, but it what it does is it actually sort of protects the DNA and sort of changes the DNA. Right. Uh, and so it can, it can prevent tumors. It also just simply combats uh, age related sort of decay. And so it's, you know, there's when somebody says, why are you drinking that wine? You say, I'm staying young. I'm staying young. Right. It's it's preserving my youthful attitude towards life, and that's going to preserve my life in general. Yes. However, I have another one. Um, it's from the, the researchers at Loyola University in Chicago, Stritch School of Medicine's Alcohol Research Program. Okay. That's a mouthful. They're not in La Jolla. They're in Chicago. They're in Chicago. I'll they're, bet they came to different conclusions than the guys in La Jolla. <laughs> <laughs> they're bitter. What they said is, this is not a surprise, binge drinking is bad for us. Oh, yeah. But here's the part that's, that's new. And they reported this in medical news today, that, that what happens is when you get pretty drunk, uh, your, your immune system gets revved up. And so yep. it's sort of like it rushes to the scene of the crime uh-huh. uh, and to try to deal with this, these what amounts are poisons in your body. I hate to bring it up, but yes, yes alcohol is a poison. Yes. Uh, and then what they do is they drop for hours and hours, uh, as much as five, six, seven hours later, there's no immune system working. Oof. And so if you have any kind of infection or if you are, you know, as something that athletes know that, you know, alcohol is not necessarily great for your performance, but if you were, you know, muscle repair, a wound, anything yep. like that. And so, you know, you're yep. allowing, in essence, all these things to go along. And, and uh, it's not just a, a, um, a, a matter of weight, but it's also the effect is worse for women. Mm-hmm. That because of just the way it reacts and the way women's bodies react to the chemical well, you know, makeup. We, we joke about this a lot, but the truth is um, I, um, work, I work pretty hard. I don't work very hard at it, but I don't overindulge in wine. And th- the reason is that um, I know how you feel the next morning when you do. And I'm smart enough now at my age to look at that third, fourth, fifth glass of wine and say, it looks good, it tastes good, and tomorrow it's going to hurt too much, so I don't do it. So moderation in all things, absolutely words to live by. True with alcohol, true with everything else, true with listening to Rick and Paul. Right. Well, that's true. Moderation. Is, well, and I was going to say, it's one of the things about you I've always admired, and it's why I always let you drive. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we come back. More questions from listeners, and next week, that could be you. Stay with us. You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul, and we're going back to the mailbag. And once again, a reminder, you want to ask us a question that we can fumble around with, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine, and you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free, just a little bit of a click. All right, so we have one from uh, Casey Maxwell in Riverside, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and his question's an interesting one. He said, I've had wines my friends said went bad, hmm. but I kind of like them. Is it okay to drink bad wine? Is there something in it that I shouldn't drink? Okay, so we got two questions here. Because the first one is, what makes the wine bad? And the second thing is, should he drink it? And and the answer to the second one is actually the simpler 
of the two questions, which is because wine has relatively high acidity, most wine has an acidity somewhere slightly less acidic than lemon juice, so pretty acid, plus it's got 12, 13, 14% alcohol. The combination of those two factors means there is very little that's bad for you. That, that would survive, grow, right. That can survive right, in right. wine. Yeah. So if the wine is oxidized, if it had a bad cork, if you know, all of those things will make it maybe taste, certainly taste not the way the winemaker wants it. But if you taste a bottle of wine and your friends say, oh, it's too this or it's too that and you like it, there is no real health reason you shouldn't drink it. And if you like it, Drink it. Yeah. And then, this, and of course, you know, the extension of that is all those things we talk about that make wine go bad really all just affect the flavor. There's really nothing right. in those that right. if you had them outside of wine that would have any impact. Right. If you drank TCA, which is the thing that makes makes wine corked and tastes kind of musty and cork. Yep. If you managed to have a glass of TCA, God, help you because the, <laughs> you don't want to do it that. would not be very tasty. You don't want to do that. But if you managed to get it down, you would survive it. So now, now I, yeah. I do want to I do want to actually layer a sort of a an additional answer over wait, the top wait, wait. of this. You're not talking about nuance and subtlety because I'm that's gonna, not what we do here. No, no. I'm talking nuance and subtlety here a little bit because right. when you think Hang about in there. what in, can Casey. go wrong with wine, well, it can get – we talked about light struck. That just means that the fruit tastes a little faded. Right. We talk about bad cork or rather the TCA. But we're kind of downers today, aren't we? But the real the, – the primary – way wine goes bad at most people's houses is they open the bottle and they drink some of it and they forget about it and they come back seven days later and it's turned to kind of a browner color and it's old and it's tired and it's oxidized, right? Yeah. Same way that an apple oxidizes when you cut it open and you leave it open to the air, it turns brown. So, okay, your wine's oxidized. Now, you can say, oh, that's horrible wine, or you can just tell yourself deep in your heart of hearts, it's not oxidized Chardonnay. It is, in fact, my own homemade version of sherry because, of course, sherry is a perfectly acceptable kind of wine. It is oxidized. It's produced in Spain. It's lovely stuff. And convince yourself you're drinking your own homemade sherry and have another glass. We had a, uh, a, a Pinot Grigio that had been in the refrigerator only a day, Yep, but it managed to get oxidized. Uh -huh. Now, I know you're shocked because the fact that I had an unfinished bottle over. of wine. Yes. But nonetheless, it actually happened. <laughs> and um, and it had gotten oxidized, and we had Chinese food the next day. And, uh, yep. you know, and it, it went wonderfully with yeah, it. Exactly. You know, so, you know, exactly. you just never know. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. So there you go. That was, so it, but, uh, and when the winemaker calls up and says, but that's not what I wanted when I made this wine, you have the perfect answer was, eh, what do you know? Yeah. Well, I say, and yeah, but you didn't get Chinese food. So that's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. All right. Our next one, it comes from Steve Morrison in Sacramento. Said I had a Chenin Blanc I liked a lot, but I can't find many. Why aren't there more? And I remember big jugs of it when I was a kid. Okay, so Steve is an older gentleman. He's uh, he's not older, older. He's but he's not a youngster. He's in he's about fifty. Okay, uh, I, happen, I happen to know Steve Morrison. Uh, another, you know, because I'm I solicit questions from friends to make them listen to the show. Is Good. What I do. Okay. And, well, know. the reason I'm saying this is because if he remembers big jugs of it a long time ago, it was a long time ago. Uh, Chenin Blanc, a wonderful grape. It makes one of the world's great wines in France called Vouvray. Uh, but frankly, it has fallen out of favor. A kiss worse than death in the American wine industry yeah, is a wine that has uncool. become unpopular. Yeah. And yeah. frankly, it became unpopular because people used to make it a little sweet. And everybody knows that if a wine's sweet, it can't be good. 
Well, more than that, they used to make those big jugs out of Columbard, well, French Columbard. Yeah, it wasn't even Chenin Blanc. There, there are wonderful Chenin Blancs in the world. Um, Steve should look for Vouvray yeah. because that's a good alternative. And just west of where we uh, were record the show is Clarksburg. It's actually sa- south. South. Yes. But yes. Well, that's great, the thing. Great, Chenin Blanc. Yeah, that Clarksburg is one of the two or three great regions on the planet for Chenin Blanc. Yep. And there are more and more folks down there uh, making it. So you keep your eyes peeled. So, um, Steve, we're on your side. Yeah, I People love should Chenin make Blanc. more of it. They should grow more of it. And yes, we wish there were more it's of it. It's a really versatile wine. And like you said, it can be it can be really steely. It can be really sweet. It, uh, or it can be made sweet, but it's just a terrific wine. Especially if it's handcrafted. If it's handcrafted, exactly. Exactly right. That's the way to get it. Get yourself some hand. Handcrafted Shannon Blanc. That's the best stuff. <laughs> All right, we got, we got one more from Linda Chan in Ukiah. Um, by the way, Linda is now our second listener in Ukiah, so I think we have uh, a, a, an enclave up there. Excellent. Now. Well, and that's wine country. There's some it's nice true. wineries up yeah, there. There are indeed. Uh, Linda said, I've always wondered why we talk about terroir so much with wine. Well, that's easy for you to say, isn't it? You want to <laughs> yes. try that one more time, yes. Rick? Why do we talk about reserve troll? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered why we talk so much about terroir uh, with wine, but never with any other fruit like apples or peaches. My cousin is a pear farmer, and he said every orchard's a little bit different. And that's a really good question. She's absolutely right. Yeah. And I would point out that, for example, there are Vidalia onions. And they are called Vidalia onions because where they are grown is a particular place that produces a particular tasty kind of onion. So we are beginning to see more of this. Now, in the old world, in Europe, it's huge. You know, you get prosciutto di Parma, and it's different from any other prosciutto. You get mozzarella di buffalo from Napoli, and it's different from other mozzarella. So in Europe, they've got this a little more organized. We're still feeling our way around, but she's absolutely right that different regions do different things. And where we get involved in it is things like the Washington Apple Board, the Idaho Potato. Um, all of these are ultimately expressions of the same kind of terroir, maybe on a bigger scale, but this, we're still going the same direction. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, and and uh, the the wine part of it aside is is the food part of it, which is something that I actually, you know, you know, I'm a food writer as well, and I know some of this. You know, it has a lot to do with our own food culture here in the U.S., is that we are exactly opposite of sort of the old world, uh, partly because we're so really so new and you know and so in Italy for example everybody's so fiercely proud of their village and, and everything right. that comes from it. in the US one of the things that had had for, for literally a century been something that this country was proud of was our large grand scale ability to produce uniformity right. uniformly good things yep mass like, produced right not handcrafted not handcrafted <laughs> right we and so this idea that you could go anywhere and get right. a good apple or a good potato or the same beer yeah. was actually something very american very uniquely yeah. american Al- although we have now learned that making it s- on such an industrial scale often means that it is not particularly distinguished right. in, in quality. And, and where you're seeing it change, farmer's markets. Uh, well, farm to fork, and that's exactly what's changed. And yep. so so the, the thing is that, that in the, this sort of the, this century, really, but it really over, even the last five or six years, American food culture, and particularly Californian food culture, because we have so much here. And then I need to say Sacramento, living in Sacramento, which calls itself the farm to fork capital yep. of, of America, and there's so much that you, is unique here, and we do 
feel the, the difference between vineyards and ranches and farms. Yep. And so that is changing, but it is a really good question. And it uh, and I think that if you you know keep paying attention, because I think 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about the terroir of lots and lots of fruits and lots and lots of things. Yeah, and, and not just California, because everywhere in the States, you're seeing the same kind of interest. So the local VOR movement, this is all part of the same thing. It's a really good thing. Yeah, right, right, right. All right, well, uh, that leads to what is coming up right after in a second, actually, as we zip up the mailbag and move on. A reminder, uh, you can ask us a question at rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And coming up is our food and wine pairing. Cool. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We've got a food pairing for you. Uh, we think now that you've survived the Super Bowl and all the party food and all that stuff, your metabolism's trying to get back to normal. Um, so uh, we've given you something, one of my favorites, actually, uh, but something that we consider simple, healthy, and yet robust, which is roasted chicken. Ah, uh, yes. Roasted chicken. So, Paul, I'm going to assign you a red to go with the roasted chicken, and I'm going to make a white suggestion. Well, I'm going to tell you that chicken goes with everything. It does. I, it really well, does. Well, and roasted chicken in particular. Yeah. yeah I yeah, mean, yeah. it really it has yeah. enough fat and enough salt that it'll work with any red wine. It's light enough. It's not powerful. It'll work with any white wine. Yeah. It's the, and the ideal and, food for wine and food pairing. And, and especially how it's done often, you know, if you go by those the restaurants, you can smell the mesquite coming out. Yep. You know, that roasted mesquite, yep. roasted chicken will go with all kinds of stuff. But pick yep. one or two that you think. Well, my favorite, I mean, and, and it's because it's the wine that goes with everything. So you know where I'm going with this. You take a roast chicken, you take a glass of Pinot Noir, and you're a, it's a match made in I'm heaven. I'm happy thinking about it. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. it, no better match. Yeah, and and yes, it does. It does. I, I'm getting, I have a little smile on my face. Well, <laughs> and since I'm going white, and I'm thinking a Viognier. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, because of the layers, the Viognier sometimes has a richness to it, and I think that it, it goes lovely with roasted chicken. Although I also think for Chardonnay drinkers, uh, a roasted chicken yep. the, is the perfect dish. It's chicken. It yeah. goes with Riesling. It goes, I mean, it goes with Gewürztraminer. It goes with lots of stuff. It's chicken. It's it's chicken. Uh, well, yes. Although we don't want we don't want to downplay chicken. Uh, you no, know, no. Yeah. It's 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 like it's the perfect party guest. It is. You can invite anybody and chicken, and they will be happy. That's why I get invited to parties. People say, you know, Rick, you're kind of a chicken. You're kind of a chicken. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, that is it. All right. <laughs> That's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Bassini, and thanks as always to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question, Lord knows why you would, but. We'd give it a shot. You just go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And once again, a reminder, you can, you can find us on iTunes. Subscribe for free with just one little click. If you learned anything today, we hope it's that uh, now, you know, a couple glasses of wine well, might get you in good with Vatican City. And especially if they're handcrafted. If they're handcrafted. Yes, absolutely. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.